Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? In which they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past. I'm Sarah Ifdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by guest Elizabeth Bonneman, who is going to talk with me about The Time Meddler, a four-episode serial of season two of the classic original Doctor Who. So would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you suggested this particular piece of media? Uh, yes. So I, I have more than a passing interest in medieval history. It's what I will major in when I have enough money to go back to college. Mm -hmm. But I am also like neck deep in the lore of Doctor Who. Like it's, it's mm -hmm. one of my passions. I know it better than anyone I know. And so when I found out that you had never seen an episode before, <laughs> I was like, we should watch some Doctor Who. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they've, they've dropped into the medieval, into medieval Europe, like on more than one occasion. Yeah. And this is, this is the first where there's surviving footage. Mm -hmm. They went a few earlier times, but uh, the BBC in the 60s did not have a good track record of keeping uh, track of their tapes. Right. And, Right. They would they would wipe them and use them for other shows without thinking, mm -hmm. oh, maybe we want to save this. Maybe we want to revisit it someday. Yeah. They changed, but, the, they, yeah. they changed the policy in like 72, but by that point, the damage was done. I, I guess Doctor Who always seemed very daunting in the sense that there's just so much of it. There and is. I was never quite sure where to start because there obviously to some extent is the wisdom in starting at the beginning, but I also met people who had right. very strong feelings that you shouldn't for some reason. Well, again, starting at the beginning is difficult because so much of right. the first six seasons is lost. Yeah. So, so it's like you watch the first three serials and then the fourth serial is just gone. So Yeah, so you have these weird gaps. Yeah. And then you come back into it and it's like, oh, there's new people here. Where have they come from? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And it was interesting coming in, not having seen any of it. And all of a sudden there's these people and they're referring to other people that are gone. And it's like, all right. Um, yeah. You know. People who, people who literally left in the previous episode. So. Right. Yeah. But I didn't watch the previous episode. I just watched these. Right. Episodes, which, so. which is fair. I mean, it's, it's a lot to watch. <laughs> But it was fun. I could see going back and watching more at some point. Uh, but, uh -huh. uh, but yeah, but just in terms of timing, I did not have time to watch everything in existence leading up to this. So as I said, just started. Fair. Yeah. I haven't either. And this, is, and this is a thing that I just do. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so the Time Meddler stars, I would say the main people are William Hartnell, who is the first doctor, I believe. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. He, was, he was the originator of the role. William Hartnell was known in the 50s as an action movie actor who is usually oh, hmm. playing the, who usually played like you know thuggish villain roles so this is like a huh. honestly a major departure for him like a yeah. big part of the reason why he took the role is like i want to have something my grandkids can watch <laughs> right right <laughs> so we have his uh two companions currently in this uh serial are uh, vicky played by maureen o'brien and stephen taylor played by peter purvis purvis do you know? I honestly have no idea how to pronounce it. Yeah. I, I've, I've pronounced it pervs just because that's how it looks, but I have yeah. no idea. Yeah. P-U-R-V-E-S for anyone who wants to look it up. And then the meddling monk played by Peter Butterworth. Yes. Oh. And, and I don't know any of the rest of them from anything. Well, Peter Purves, or however we're pronouncing it, 
was a presenter on children's show at one point, but that's all I know about any of their careers, so. Yeah, so we can kind of get into the episode. So I'll start with a very brief recap and uh, then I actually, you can go ahead and give us a little bit of background. Yes, because we're starting near the end of the second season. So, so right. stuff has happened before this and, and Sarah, Sarah sent me some notes and she's like, I am very confused. I don't know these people and I don't know what's going on. Right, yeah. <laughs> Which, fair. Yeah, so I'll be asking you some questions throughout, I imagine, but yeah, but you can also yeah. provide some uh, brief background. So first of all, the basic premise for anyone of the, I'm sure there must at least be one other person in the world who has not watched Doctor Who. Yeah. The, for you three. Uh, right. <laughs> the basic premise seems to be that a human passing alien time lord known as the Doctor is exploring across time and space in the TARDIS, uh, which stands for Time and Relative Dimension in Space, which is a combined time machine and spaceship, right? They go around yep. in time, but they it's, also go to different places. Right. It's, a, it's Yeah, it's a time machine spaceship. It's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Right. It looks like a 1963 police box, which is a, right. a police telephone box, which as a creative choice, it's, it's to make it very distinct. But, uh, uh -huh. also, but the reason in universe why it always looks like that is there is a there is a part of the TARDIS called the chameleon circuit, which is supposed to mm -hmm. blend it in with its surroundings. So like if it appeared on the beach, it's supposed to look like a large rock. If it appeared right. in if it appeared in uh, the example that the doctor gives is if it appeared in Imperial India, it would it might look like a howdah, like the, mm -hmm. the things that you would that you ride in on the back of an elephant. And if it lands in a junkyard in 1963 London, it looks like, it might look like a police telephone box. Right. But the chameleon circuit breaks in the very first episode. So like, it, it's, it's in this junkyard. It looks like a police box. All's well and good. He takes mm -hmm. off. The next episode, he lands in the Stone Age. It still looks like a police box. And he's like, hmm, <laughs> ah, it's not supposed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so you have it very much being something that's uh, that's super distinct. It's been established like it, since then that like the doctor could fix it by knows how to fix it by this point if he wanted to, but, he, uh -huh. but he's also gotten used to it. And also <laughs> if he and also if he ch fixed it now, he wouldn't he would never remember where he parked. <laughs> Which adds to the kind of dynamic of the doctor as being this sort of elderly man, even though oh, yes. I assume even, even age when he even when he looks way. yeah even when he looks younger in like other incarnations, he's still at heart a very old man. Right. <laughs> in this particular serial, he and his current companions Vicky and Stephen arrive in England in 1066, shortly before the Norman invasion, and find themselves in conflict with a fellow time traveler disguised as a monk who travels through time attempting to either change history or use historical knowledge to his own advantage. And they basically have to stop him from trying to prevent the Norman conquest. So do you want to give a little background about uh, other things we should know in terms of where we are and who these people are? When we got to this point in the previous serial, uh, Vicky, who is, she's human, but she's sort of the doctor's adopted granddaughter. It was traveling with the doctor and a pair of school teachers named Ian and Barbara, who come from 1963. And uh, the doctor can't steer the TARDIS. Like he, ha he has no real control over, wh over where he like, right. where he ends up in, in space and time. So Ian and Barbara have been traveling with the doctor and they've enjoyed their travels. But when they by chance end up in 1960s London again, they're like, we don't know when we're gonna hit this again. So we're yeah. gonna 
go now. Thank you for everything, doctor. We hope to see you again someday. And so they leave. Also in the previous serial, they were caught in the crossfire between these, this war between the, these two uh, cyborg robot races, the Daleks and the Mechanoids. And uh-huh. they rescued a prisoner of the Mechanoids named Steven Taylor, who they discover at the start of this serial has stowed away in the TARDIS because he has nowhere else to go. Okay. So and is he human? He is human. Okay. Most of the companions uh, are human, at least to this point, except for with the exception of the doctor's granddaughter, who was his very first companion who mm-hmm. left some time ago. That's, but that's where we are currently. Okay. Steve, Vicky's been with him a while. Stephen is new. Yeah, okay. And it, it does also help that you were telling me earlier that Vicky is supposed to be much younger than she looks. Uh, the actual yes. actress is in her 20s. She looks like she's in her 20s. Yeah. Uh, but she, is apparently supposed to be a teenager. Yeah, she's... Yeah, she was a she was a an orphan from a star from a starship crash, mm-hmm. and uh, she was like recently orphaned. And the doctor recently, like his granddaughter, opted to stay behind on twenty second century Earth because she fell in love mm-hmm. with a resistance fighter. And so they they meet and they kind of fill this void that they each have in each other's lives. Like the doctor right. is like a parental figure to her; she's like the granddaughterly figure to him. So they he, he essentially adopts her. Yeah, and so that definitely, I would say, uh, kind of helps because there's this weirdly sort of infantilizing dynamic, but knowing both that she's younger and also that she's an orphan and that he's recently had this granddaughter that he's lost, that that makes it a little less yeah. weird. It makes sense in context. I can see how it would come off as a little weird without the context. Yeah, so that definitely seems slightly odd. She also, every now and then, seems a little, like, not super bright. Like, she has, very, she has a lot of trouble remembering what TARDIS stands for. Well... Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's something that doesn't really come up much. And, no, uh, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's a little odd, but it does, it helps a little bit definitely to know the context. So Stephen and the fact that he's one of the companions is actually brand new in this episode. I guess we met him in the previous episode, but it's only at the beginning of this one that we learned that he's stowed away on the ship and is yes. hanging out. And he then refuses to believe that the TARDIS is in fact a time machine. And so uh, there's a big like subplot in the beginning of these couple episodes, uh, basically just of him being slowly convinced that he's actually traveled back in time. Yeah, he's 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 fairly slow to slow to accept this. He's he's like <laughs> I get it's like all right, Doc, I buy that it's a spaceship, but time travel really? Come on, <laughs> come on. Sure, it's bigger on the inside, but. It can't really travel in time, can it? <laughs> <laughs> right. But we, of course, know that they've traveled in time. I mean, you certainly would know if you had previously watched Doctor oh, yeah. Who. But also, you know, because they meet a woman who's very dirty. And that is the universal signal in film and television for we're back in the Middle Ages. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> She is talking to her husband and another villager, and they are concerned about this mysterious large box that has appeared on the shore and are going to investigate. Which, fair enough. It looks, it lo- it sticks out like a sore thumb anywhere yeah. it goes. <laughs> yeah. Except, I guess, 1960s England. Yeah, it's, it, well, yes. <laughs> the doctor finds what he deems to be a Viking helmet, which I will be discussing more in a later segment. Yeah. And based it's, on this, places them in 11th and 12th century England. Yeah. yeah and, and, and there's a brilliant line, because it's, it's the classical depiction of a Viking helmet with horns, 
and uh, mm -hmm. and he's like, and he's like, there, there, a Viking helmet. What do you make of that? And Stephen, who still doesn't believe that they're, they're that they've traveled in time, is like, well, maybe. It's like, what do you mean, maybe? What do you think <laughs> it is? A space helmet for a cow? <laughs> right. Which is a great line. Oh yes. Uh, yes. Then we also see this monk in the distance. And so at first, you know, just watching this, I assume, okay, the monk is like looking at this box and trying to figure out what's going on and he's confused. But then we see he actually tries to enter the TARDIS and he's kind of smirking about something. And he also goes and does the standard motion for looking at a watch, but like there isn't actually a watch there. And he's worried about this, like, oh no, yeah. I dropped my watch. Yeah. So you're definitely looking at this thing and saying, okay, this, this is not a real 11th century monk here. Yeah, something's off. The doctor leaves Vicky and Steven to hang out by the TARDIS while he goes and investigates. I believe you tell me he gets better. I'm not fond of Steven <laughs> in most of this serial. Uh, I am not either. <laughs> Including this weird scene where he basically bullies Vicky into like walking up a mountain with him. And she's like, I just want to stay by the TARDIS like the doctor told us to. And he like half like drags her like to go around and explore more, which she doesn't want to do. And it's very yeah. frustrating. Which, yeah, it's like, it's like the doctor's like, stay here. I'll find, I'll, I'll find something. And then, and then you can come and meet me. And then it's like, and, and then like in, he walks off down the beach and like immediately once he's out of sight, Stephen's like, okay, let's see how this cliff. Right. <laughs> And she's like, no, I don't want to do that. And he's like, no, we're going to do this. So yeah, that's, that's really not a good, that's definitely not a great dynamic. Yeah. Steven, Steven has been a prisoner of the mechanoids for several years. He has forgotten how to people. <laughs> yeah, that, that helps a little that he has a reason to have forgotten how to people. But yeah, but he, he does not relate well to no. anyone. Uh, yeah, it's not great. So the doctor gets trapped by the medieval lady who... I think we, her name is going to be Edith. We don't learn that yeah. for like two episodes, but. Uh, well, we learn it next episode. But... Oh, we learn the next episode? Uh, okay. The doctor isn't great about asking people's names. Of course, that's, <laughs> right. also, that's also because then that would raise the question of what his name is, and he doesn't have a name. His name is the right. doctor, and that might raise more questions than he is willing to answer. Right. Yeah, although, yeah, I, I feel like in this time, if he just, like, said, like, just call me doctor, I feel like that might, like, pass more than it might in some other places. I could see fair, that. Fair, fair. Yeah. And so he's chatting with her. She, uh, she quickly kind of, like, you know, is won over. She gives him some mead. And uh, we hear these monks singing in their monastery, which is a ruined hovel because of the also very traditional thing that you see in uh, media where medieval monasteries are already in ruins like yep. a decade after they've been built. Yeah, yeah. And I think the story is this monastery was uh, abandoned after a Viking raid or something, which, right. which wouldn't account for this level of decay, but it does explain why no one's living there. Right. So there, there's some weird stuff that I'll talk about later in terms of, uh, you know, their, their awareness of the monastery and of the monk or monks who are or should be there. So we hear the monks singing and uh, there's this kind of odd fluctuation in the chants that, and so because of this, the doctor asks and learns this thing about, you know, that the monastery has been deserted for a number of years and the monks have only recently moved back in, but that they've only actually ever seen or met one of them. Yeah. Which is suspicious. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. The doctor also, through his conversation with her, is able to figure out that they are in Northumbria in 1066. 
which is great because he's like, when did good King Edward die? I can't quite remember. It's averting that, that like trope of like time travelers like going up to the first person they see and saying, what year is this? And, and instead, right. he's like, instead he's like cleverly using context clues to figure yeah. out where and when he is. Yeah. So that I thought worked really well. The part that's much clumsier is that he's like, so are we in Northumbria? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, I didn't know if we'd cross the border, which is like not a very medieval way of putting it in yeah. Yeah, yeah. for this particular regions, especially. So that was a bit clumsier, but, the t- but finding out the date, he did a quite good job of. Yes. Stephen, meanwhile, has of course managed to get them completely lost. Oh yeah. <laughs> And also then ends up uh, fighting some random medieval man and then grabbing a watch off him. And this then encourages his insistence that, look, this guy is a watch. We're not really in 10th century England. And yeah. Like, oh, we're in the 11th. Come on. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the watch is a good, you know, getting a watch off a medieval, off a medieval villager is a good, uh, a, good, a good clue that something at least is going on. But we yeah. obviously know that it must be the monk's clearly missing watch. Uh-huh. We then find another odd modern uh, piece of technology, or at least modern to the 1960s, uh, when this came out. I think I forgot to say that earlier. This came out, I think, 1964? This one's 65. 65. So the doctor makes it to the monastery, and uh, instead of the singing monks, he follows these sounds, and it leads him to a phonograph, a item which I did not remember what was called, and definitely just wrote down <laughs> my notes the flower record player and decided that I would look that up later. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, you're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It's also, I don't know if you saw those memes that were going around at some point of, I think they were like items from like Antiques Roadshow or one of those sort of shows, but with like ridiculous captions. And one of them was a photograph and the caption was just loud flower. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I have not seen that before, but I love it. I highly recommend looking them up. A lot of them are super fun, but I saw this item and that was the only thing I could think of was loud flower. Mm-hmm. But he is then trapped by the monk who laughs maniacally, which is what the episode ends on. This is, see, the monk, late, later on we find out that the monk thinks he's in the right, but, but with a, like, if you're laughing maniacally, dude, you're not, you're not the good guy. That's right. not how this works. <laughs> And it's also bizarre because so we'll we'll talk more about the monk and his motivations later, but some of them are very altruistic, but some of them are very much not. Also based on the like the way that time travel works, he's also just wrong in yeah. how all this works, but it's but we'll get to that later. Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts too about whether what he's doing would actually even accomplish what he thought it would accomplish, but yeah. yeah. But we'll we'll get to that when we get to that. Yeah. So uh, we open in the next episode on the monk prepping an extremely 20th century English breakfast, but oh, I yes. assume that's intentional. Yeah, he's got he's doctor. got a he's got a, an electric toaster. He's got like uh-huh. one of the, he's got like one of those little griddles that you make eggs on. Like <laughs> like he, he's he's just he's got a whole he's got a whole 1965 kitchen set up in this right. in a room in this monastery. Like not, nothing like. Well, I, I should I should say like he doesn't have like you know a full on electric fridge or anything, right. but it's he's he's got like you know a portable griddle, a portable toaster. It's like he's got a portable kitchen. Yeah, and it's very much like the the dynamic for a lot of this is very much how would he explain any of this if somebody came into the <laughs> <Yes>. monastery? <laughs> very much so. <laughs> 
And there's this odd implication that, well, I guess nobody ever has until somebody will in these episodes, uh -huh. the villagers will, but it is this kind of odd, I mean, so again, this is something I'll talk about later, but it's unlikely that he would have been that successful in being quite that isolated. Yeah. They, they know he's there. They, they know how, where to go to knock on his door. Like, they, they've right. never gone inside and seen all of this. <laughs> And he's always done like a very good job, apparently, of like opening the door just a teeny tiny crack and like taking a basket of food and then been like, gotta get back to my solitary contemplation. And nope. they never think this is weird. Nope, not once. <laughs> until uh, until the yeah. end of the, until the end when they do. But <laughs> right, the doctor is sulking and not very happy, which is fair. Yeah. And throws but at the monk what I feel like can only be a bucket of urine. Yeah, I like, yeah, it's like, I guess it's his, it's his chamber pot, his bedpan, probably. Yeah. But uh, an interesting note about this particular episode, uh, so I was, I was reading up on some trivia, William Hartnell actually had the week off. Hmm. So that, so they just had a couple of pre-recorded lines oh. for that scene, and so he's just locked in a room this whole episode, right. and we just see... Vicky and Steven and the monk and everyone else running around doing their thing, but the doctor is out of right. action for the episode. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting, because I noticed that, that it was like this sort of odd dynamic that I assumed was just stylistic and not, you know, the mundane reason that he just had a week off. Yeah, William Hartnell was on vacation for a week. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But yeah, so it's interesting, this dynamic that like, he obviously is in many ways the center, but you go this entire episode without actually seeing him. Yeah, and, and like, it also, like, it's always been said that, like, the companions are, are just as important characters mm -hmm. as the Doctor. Like, in the in these early episodes, there's, like, a, there's, like, even through the cycle of companions, there's, like, a very recognizable, like, dynamic between the different companions. Because, like, mm -hmm. there's, there's the Doctor, who is an old man who, uh, you know, since William Hartnell is not in the best physical shape, like, they, they got, that's why they got him a couple of companions. It's, uh -huh. like, one or... There's one or two adult companions to do all the actiony stuff, and right. then like, and then a child who is who is like supposed to be relatable to the kids watching. So like, mm -hmm. so like the adults that you first had Ian and Barbara, then you have Stephen, then later you have Ben and Polly, and then like for the kids you first have Susan, then you have Vicky, and then you have Dodo. And so like this this dynamic like remains stable for most of the first doctor's time on the show okay. until he until he regenerates into a younger man and can do action scenes himself so that's sort of like the meta reason why there are companions because like mm -hmm. william hartnell's an old man can't really do all that much right so if you want to have action sequences you need these younger actors who are able yeah. to, to handle that you know you need your ians and your barbaras and your stevens yeah hmm. interesting Speaking of, Vicky and Steven are busy arguing about the watch, and Steven is being a real asshole yet again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they are then captured by the medieval villagers. Yep. The monk, meanwhile, is sitting around basically being grumpy about his lost watch, at which point Edith and a friend of hers bring him this, like, giant basket of food. Yes. And this is another one of these moments. They, like, bring him this, like, donation which feels like i mean depending on how many people contributed to it like it actually is pretty substantial in terms of their you yeah, know it's a, it's a lot of food for one guy like i know he's, yeah. he's keeping up the pretense that there are more people here but where right. what's, he do, what's he doing with that food like, it's I guess kind of obnoxious that yeah, like I, you're just taking food from all these people and uh -huh, like, like there's no way you can eat yourself yeah like i mean i guess he's feeding the doctor but like 
he but, wasn't before the doctor showed up. Yeah. And he's clearly been doing this for like at least, I don't know, like a couple of months or so. Uh, yeah, a, a while. Yeah. Like, the, I, think the, I think the quoted figure is a few weeks, which okay. is a significant, it's not an insignificant chunk of time. Yeah. He also makes just all of these really pointed comments about how much he likes solitude until they leave. <laughs> yes, that, that, <laughs> scene, that scene was funny. It's like, it's like, ah, but today is a day for so- solitary contemplation. Because you can tell that they've interrupted him when he was about to go and do something for right. his master plan that we find out about later. Right. He does something after after this that really looked to me like he was snorting cocaine, but I feel like that can't possibly I, be what he was doing. I think based on the context and the fact that it's 1965 British television, it's snuff tobacco. Oh, that makes much more sense. Yeah, because I, 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 I cannot imagine that, that uh, heavy drug use would, would fly in, in mid-60s English television. Right, I'm like, I know he's not supposed to be a good guy, but especially, still like- Especially what is, what is billed as a children's show, like- Right, yeah. Yeah, no, I think not. <laughs> Stuff tobacco, good to know, yeah. Because yep. I was like, this can't possibly be what they're going for, but that's yeah. definitely what it looks like. And he also, with his modern binoculars, spies a Viking longboat and is suddenly very happy about the arrival of the Vikings. And I'm just sitting here being like, good, maybe the Vikings will kill Steven because I really hate him at this point. Uh, they don't. Um. Sorry, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Spoiler alert, everybody. St- Steven stays around for a while. <laughs> he, he actually outlasts like four other companions, but... Oh, wow. Yeah. He does leave eventually, don't worry. Um, <laughs> I mean, my, you also said that he, like, gets better. He right? does get better. Oh. He, he improves significantly once he's had time to, you know, acclimate to people again. Right. So now that all the villagers are accusing him of being a Viking spy, he finally is like, oh, I guess this is pretty authentic Saxon, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, yeah, now you believe it's in like, time travel. Well, I, I think at this point he's like, yeah, okay, uh, if this was a charade, it is far too elaborate to be not real at this point like okay i i buy it <laughs> right like this is way too much for a costume party yeah it's like it's like even the moon landing hoax um <laughs> right <laughs> would be yeah less elaborate than yeah this. right the uh medieval lady edith figures out that they know the doctor and then kind of vouches for them and convinces the men she she there's her and she has this friend and otherwise there are no uh, other women in the village. there's yeah, there's uh, yeah, there's only like three named Saxon villagers. Like, right. there's, there's there's Edith, there's her husband Wolfnoth, who is like the uh, head of the village, and then there's yeah. Eldrad, who is who is very vocal that he that he is certain that Stephen and Vicky are Viking spies. Yes, and like he's he's like we should we should hang them now. We should kill <laughs> them now. Just uh, and and Wolfnoth's like, calm down, Eldrad, calm down. <laughs> Yeah, and one of his justifications for this is that they're wearing weird clothing, which my immediate reaction was definitely like, yeah, but it's not Viking clothing. Like, they'd know what the Viking yeah. clothing was. Right. But then I actually saw the Viking clothing. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, um, yes, that's a thing that happens. Yeah, the Viking clothing is ridiculous. It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Like, I think there's a tunic that has ruffles at some point, and then there's just a lot of, like, studded items. A lot of studded items. 
Yeah, and then also, like, there's this one guy who's got, like, a bowl cut with a ponytail and a Civil War era mustache. Yeah, and another one who has, like, a ponytail, one of those, one of those ponytails that goes straight up. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, okay, it's like, it just, it really felt like one of those bits where it's like, okay, maybe you don't have the highest budget, maybe you just, like, raided, like, the, like, BBC prop closet. Oh yeah, that, I mean that's closet a, and like a lot of like early Doctor Who is very low budget. Like yeah, so so that's probably what happened. But still, it's not great. <laughs> one of them's got one of them's got an eagle on his helmet. That's not a right. Yeah, that's not a Viking thing. That's like a 18th century Prussian thing. Right. <laughs> they raided the BBC costume department and they're like, oh, this looks good. <laughs> right. It's a lot of shit that looks like it's from like some vague some opera set vaguely in the past yeah like the ring cycle or something right which i think was vikings come to think of it in that yeah, one vikingish but, yeah yeah vikingish yeah. but anyway the leader gives sven a very detailed explanation of how uh, they're just here to like sneak around and find information and they shouldn't be seen and it's not a regular rating mission which is very clearly like for the benefit of the audience and just like not a conversation that would have happened yeah it's it's also hilarious because like the minute they come across any people they immediately like they're like fuck stealth attack <laughs> right yeah it's like they're it's like you have this whole thing about what they're supposed to be doing and they don't even like, do it. Quiet scouting mission. Hey, look, a person. <laughs> but it's also the whole thing is sort of silly because like, do they expect that what, like this random villager in the middle of nowhere is like gonna call King Harold on the phone and like let him know <laughs> that like the Vikings are there? Like, yeah, it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't. Although the medieval people are definitely too dumb to think it's weird that there's only one monk, Stephen does figure out that this is suspicious. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and that means the medieval people are especially dumb because Stephen is not that bright. <laughs> no, Stephen is definitely dumb. Yeah. And yeah, so Stephen then thinks that he has tricked the monk into giving him a description of the doctor when Stephen never gave him a description of the doctor so that he's like produced all this information. And Stephen's like, aha, I tricked him. And now I know he has the doctor somewhere. And Vicky's definitely like, I feel like you're not as smart as you think you are. And he wants you to have to think that you tricked him. She's like, ah, uh, no, it's definitely a trap. <laughs> Which obviously makes sense. And she's also obviously right. But it's also vaguely unclear exactly what the point of the trap is, except just to make sure, I guess, that they don't bother him. I, I think it's I think it's like uh, him locking up the doctor. He's he, he like in, recognizes that like they do not come from this time. So So yeah. I should like make sure they do not interfere in my plans by locking them up. Yeah. Which I can see where they're coming from. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, it's, it doesn't not make sense on his part. It's like, I, it's like, I will, it's like, okay, my, I'm going to lock them up and keep them fed with this overabundance of food that I have. And, <laughs> At least and, somebody's eating it. And they will stay out of my way, <laughs> at least in but theory. You know, yeah, if it had worked out, might have been a, a good plan for him. Yeah. So the Vikings arrive on, on schedule, or as they say, schedule. Uh, schedule. Schedule. It's, a, it's an English show. Yeah. No, it's just how it's like one, it's one of the few like British pronunciations that I always find like very jarring for some yeah. reason, even though I like have seen many like British things. Oh, you, you uh, it's especially jarring. Like this is, a, this is a bit of a digression, but like much later on, like in the, in the revival series, there's a character named Captain Jack Harkness. Mm -hmm. who was played by an actor named John Barrowman. 
Now, John Barrowman is originally from Scotland, but he grew up in Illinois. So he uh -huh. has an American accent, but every once in a while, he'll bust out a British pronunciation like schedule. And like in it, the American uh, accent, it is especially jarring. Yeah, no, that sounds very weird. Like, oh, what's the line? Estrogen. <laughs> Like, like <laughs> this man is, this man is like talking in this very American accent. And then suddenly he says the word estrogen. <laughs> right. Like, all right. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. No, I mean, the other one is that always like, I, I, I remember the first time I went to a lecture that was given by a British person who said Byzantine. And I was like, the what? <laughs> the what now? <laughs> it's the first time yeah, I've heard yeah. that one. <laughs> So the Vikings arrive on schedule, and uh, the one who has an eye patch attacks the attacks Edith. Yep. <laughs> the one with the eye patch. <laughs> the one with the eye patch. Yep. She is clearly concussed, but does revive just enough to be able to tell everybody that no, it's not those travelers that Eldred was so gung ho about killing. It's like the actual Vikings. So they go off to go and look to look to the vikings and there is this battle which is extremely <laughs> low budget and uh -huh. not very well done it's gosh it's it's like my it's it's like when we when my sister and i were kids and she would try to jump on me uh, that's that's <laughs> it's a very like small confined set oh yes it's it's like a very it's it's a fairly tiny soundstage like and you got about 10 to 12 people just kind of trying to jump on each other, essentially. Right, yeah, and like awkwardly kind of hitting each other, and it just all looks very overtly fake. Oh, yeah, and the whole idea of Doctor Who having a having a budget really came with the, the revival in 2005. Uh -huh. <laughs> and that's really a... the charm of some of these, like, older BBC Oh, yeah, shows. for like, sure. Like, I Claudius, like, which I love. Like, or, it's... or Blackadder. yeah. But there's, there's actually like a beautiful line in a, in a much later episode with the fourth doctor where the BBC like owns this quarry mm -hmm. that they like reuse over and over again for like, you know, yeah. we're in a rocky place. Yeah. Uh, so at one point, uh, the doctor like, the doctor like lands in this place and, the, and his companion Romana's like, okay, let's see where we are then. And she turns on the viewfinder and the doctor's like, oh, look, rocks. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it's definitely very classic, like that era of like, yeah, BBC when there are like no, when there's like no budget to speak of. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very that. <laughs> yeah. The Saxons do manage to kill the Viking leader, but the Vikings have a wounded uh, Eldred. Yes. And they bring him to the monastery, apparently the first time they have tried to go into the monastery. And their arrival distracts the faux monk from his attempts to trap Stephen and Vicky who then unimpeded are able to find where the doctor is being kept, but he's already gone. So therefore we yep. still have not seen him. Yeah, uh -huh. and then that's the end of the episode. Yeah. Apparently the doctor has been up to something. He's been escaping. Apparently. The monk, as the next episode begins, sends Eldred and Wolf Wolfnoth to lie down and promises that he'll come back they still have not noticed that there are no other monks. So he's just like, I'm oh, yeah. going to leave you here and then I'll be back. And I feel like at this point, they really should be asking like, isn't there somebody else who could like help out? You seem very busy. Yeah, they have not caught on one bit. And like, they've heard the singing. They should think that there are other people here. Right. Yeah. It's not like he's like a hermit and he's supposed to be the only one there. Yeah. Like it would make more sense if he had passed himself off as a hermit. Like, Yes, it would. 
but but he didn't. But he didn't. But they, they still do not seem to be worried about this. Vicky suggests that the doctor must have escaped through a secret passage, basically because castles and monasteries have that sort of thing. Yep. And, and you can tell that she's even grasping at straws here. And Stephen, like, she's like, she's like, you know, in case of siege or fire or something. And Stephen's just like, really? <laughs> and for once, I'm, I'm with Stephen, like, really? <laughs> On the one hand, yes, but on the other hand, like, they did enter into a locked cell, and it does look like there's somebody who, like, wants somebody, like... That is like, true. Yeah, that is, and that so is it's true. just, like, he had so, to get out somehow. Yeah. And, and, and then they find that. it. And, and, and then they find the, uh, the secret passage, which, which proves that Vicky was right anyway, so... Yeah. To which Stephen responds, who's a clever girl, then? Which is, I feel like, something that you would say to, like... A dog? Yeah, or like a child, like under seven. Yeah, and Vicky's not that young. Yeah, like, like she's she's younger than she looks, but she's not that young. Right. I mean, so she's what supposed to be like what fifteen, sixteen? Yeah, roughly thereabouts. Maybe? Yeah, but yeah, it's uh, it's this kind of odd bit where like a lot of the scenes like make more sense when you think of her at that age, but then there's every now and then there's these bits where it's like you would think that she is like an actual child. Uh-huh. In terms of how the men relate to her. Yeah. The monk goes to smugly check on his prisoner and finds that he is gone. And meanwhile, poor Wolfnaz just really wants this monk to like make sure his friend doesn't die. And the yeah. monk's just like, this is not my problem. I've got a whole other thing going on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I I think I feel like at this point Wolfnoff is the only person with like his priorities in order. Right? <laughs> <laughs> But on the other hand, people clearly make very speedy, miraculous recoveries because so the doctor after he escapes goes to Edith, who despite the fact that she clearly must have had a concussion, now yeah. appears to be 100% recovered and very chill and like offers her some, offers him some venison. And also like she makes reference to the fact that she, that like she seems to be the only woman in the village. All the men folk have gone. I'm all, I'm all here all alone. <laughs> like. All the men right. folk are out hunting for Vikings. And I'm the only woman in this village. Uh-huh. <laughs> like how the early English reproduced themselves is like a mystery to me based on watching this. Yeah, like this, there's, there's clearly a, an imbalance here. Yeah. He then, he then also for some reason like explains to her, he's like, don't worry, Harold's going to defeat the Vikings. Oh, but then he's going to get like, he's going to like get his ass kicked by William the Conqueror. And she's like, what? Yeah, like that is, that is literally like sort of her reaction. She's like, what? <laughs> you know this? <laughs> but, the, but the doctor in, in typical doctor fashion is like, ah, but I have no time to explain. I must go back to the monastery. Right. So yes, there's a lot of like back and forth between the monastery and like not in the monastery. So he's going yeah. back to the monastery. And meanwhile, Stephen and Vicky have escaped the monastery via the secret passage. Yes. Stephen has finally decided he's on board with the fact that they did definitely go back in time, but also feels like there has to be something up with the monk and that he also does not belong here. Yeah, because they found the phonograph. They found the yeah. kitchen. Yeah. The monk finally tends to this dude's wounds. And in terms of people now just being like very chill about bringing modern things into this medieval setting, he just gives Eldred some penicillin <laughs> and Wolfnoth's like, what's it's a, that? It's a type of herb. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it. 
and then uh, and then Wolf Noth is like he's lost a lot of blood and then uh, and then the monk is like yes if only I could give him a blood transfusion and it's like what yeah Wolf's not well at this point Wolf's not like wait what <laughs> and, and the monk's like ah, don't worry about it <laughs> yeah so he's then you know he's like kind of wanders off again is very happy and leaves this poor man completely unattended again yep. not leading anyone to wonder why there are no other monks who could help out with this yep <laughs> there's then a bit of like a comedy of errors but it's everybody sort of wanders in and out of the monastery pretty much edith and wolfnoth are basically like promise like oh we'll come to the monastery all the time to help because of course eldred can't be moved and has to stay there which the monk clearly does not think is something he's on board with and does not want them to be there it's like i have this i have this plan i also have this whole modern living situation set up and now i have a saxon in just my like living chilling <laughs> yeah he's yeah. just there He's also, by the way, like, not on a bed. He's, like, laid in a stone yeah. alcove. Yeah, he's, like, he's, like, on, it's, like, lay him down on the slab. Um, this is a and good place for a there. wounded man. Yeah. Right. But there probably isn't another bed because he's the only person living there and the monastery has been deserted. Except there is a bed in the cell where, they, where right. he was keeping the doctor, but that's neither here nor there. Right. And I feel like, you know, like, trapping him in a cell might be a bad look. I mean... Yes. The Vikings and their bizarre outfits decide that they're going to go hide in the monastery. There's, there's only two of them left. There's uh, Sven and, like, I think the other one's name is Ulf. Yeah, sounds right. Uh, Sven is like, okay, I figured out how we're going to get out of here and and survive all these Saxons looking for us. And, and no, no, I have that backwards. Ulf is the one who's like, okay, I have everything planned out so that we can so that we can survive and get back to the army. And Sven's like, wow, you've you put more thought into, into saving your own skin than you did into the actual mission. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's just weird, like, okay, so there's, like, wimpy Viking and then, like, brave Viking is, is yeah. what they're, like, going with here. Viking who wants to survive and Viking who is honorable. <laughs> right. Viking who's like, didn't we have, like, a job? Like, our yeah. like, report back and he's like, eh, our leader's dead, don't worry about it. <laughs> It's like, if we make it back to the army, like, what will the king say? Yeah, and it also then adds to the, like, what was the point of this mission if, like, they're presenting it now as being so pointless that if they never come back, it doesn't at all matter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even though this mission was just explained in excruciating detail to us, it makes no sense. Yeah. The monk, or sorry, so the doctor comes back and uh, has a stick, which he pretends is a gun and is therefore able to uh, kind of hold up the, the monk at gunpoint, basically. It's like, I have a Winchester 73. And, the, and like, this is another, like, cue that the monk does not belong in this time because right. he knows what that means. Yeah, you know, they, they do that. We also see the monk's truly insane, amazing checklist. Yes. <laughs> it's written in handwriting that looks like it's like a like daily schedule for a kindergarten class uh-huh <laughs> it's very clear it doesn't look like my handwriting at all so you can read it it's, yeah um, it is very it is extremely legible and includes such items as use atomic cannon on the vikings it seems <laughs> to be the upcoming thing yep and then so it just like lists various other things that are like mostly like real historical events that are going to happen with or without him. Yeah. But then finally ends with meet King Harold. Yep. <laughs> like, King Which Harold is... will totally know that I am responsible for, for this. <laughs> yeah, which is like weirdly adorable. 
that uh-huh. his like it makes it look like his ultimate goal is just to like beat King Harold and have Harold like thank him. Which, to be fair, like I would love the chance to meet King Harold. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I I have a I have a soft spot in my heart in my heart for Harold Godwinson, mm-hmm. but but yeah. <laughs> you you and the monk alike, like the monk clearly is really into Harold Godwinson. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not into, into Harold Godwinson enough to do what the monk is trying to do, but... Right, you, you wouldn't go back in time and prevent the Norman Conquest, really? No. <laughs> I like my language the way it is, thank you. Yeah, uh, like, have you read Beowulf? We don't want that. Oh, God. <laughs> thank God we had the Norman Conquest. Uh-huh. So the monk manages to then, like, knock out the one Viking, and the doctor actually knocks out the other. So uh- they've dealt with their Viking issue for the time being. Steven, they do it the yeah. same way. They 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 uh they sneak up behind them and hit them over with a the head with a stick that breaks in half and it like from the force of the blow. It's like the sa- it's like the same method, like whack. Right, and then it's also like these people like have been terrorizing England for centuries. Like no one thought to concuss them with a, with a stick. Right, like it's just like really like this is like the best the Vikings have to offer is these dudes. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> this is this is the Viking advance force. It's no wonder Harold right. beat them. Right, exactly. It's like, well, I guess this is why this is like the end of the age of the Vikings. And then also Stephen and Vicky arrive back at the monastery, which they literally like, they leave the monastery, get out of the secret passage, and then immediately turn around and go back. They're like, well, there's nowhere else to go in this area. Let's go back to the monastery. <laughs> And Vicky's like, we just left the monastery. And Stephen's like, no, it makes sense. Everything's about the monastery. Yeah, everything, it's like, well, everything weird is about the monk. Like, so let's go back and find the monk again. Which does make sense. But it's that also just like sense, this, like, it also... feels very like, okay, but like, why did you leave? <laughs> like, Yeah. And then as they arrive, they then find that the monk has a TARDIS of his own disguised as a Saxon altar. Yes. Yeah, and this and this is actually like a really big deal within the history of the show. Because oh, okay. uh, prior to this, like, okay, there's this weird alien guy who has a time machine. This is really wacky and, and special. And like this is the episode that like that like establishes for the very first time that there are other time traveling aliens of his species right. with TARDISes. Like yeah. he is not he is not the only one. Right, which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that's yeah. kind of like a big like whoa right. this is a this is a thing yeah because i definitely would have assumed that he was the only one began not knowing anything about doctor who right so yeah the monk is the first time lord we don't find out that they're called time lords until season six oh, but he's okay. the first time lord besides the doctor and his granddaughter that we've ever met right he is a very let's see how can i put this he's a very like i don't know uh he likes to have souvenirs clearly at least and like he does he's got, yeah it's it's like well, Vicky's like, he's got something from every time and every place, which is an exaggeration, but he's got, like, a lot of stuff. Yeah, like, he's got, got a like lot a... of cool statues. Uh, nice. He has a neutron bomb. He has a whole case of neutron bombs. Oh. <laughs> and they also find his, like, very detailed journals. Uh, oh, yes. One of which he claims that he explained airplanes to Da Vinci. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Oh, right. Yeah, and Stephen's like, like and then Da Vinci invented a flying machine and also sort of wins me over by saying that Da Vinci lived in the Middle Ages, which I'll talk about more later and why yeah. I appreciated that, what most people would consider an error. Yeah. Da Vinci, mm-hmm. like, also appears in, like, a later... No, no, I tell mm-hmm. a lie. 
there's an episode of Doctor Who where the doctor goes back to Da Vinci's workshop to to find something, but he doesn't. But he's he's like, oh, Da Vinci must be out. Oh well, I'll just grab this thing that I came from <laughs> and then leave. Guess I don't have to talk to him. Uh, da Vinci hasn't actually appeared in a Doctor Who episode yet, but it's established that the Doctor knows him because the Doctor's like, oh, my buddy, I'm gonna go visit my buddy Da Vinci and grab this <laughs> thing. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's interesting because it very much seems, it seems to some extent like the obvious thing to do. So that's interesting that they've never done it. Yeah. I mean, the doc there's a lot of historical figures and the doctor has met many of them, but like, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's weird that like, he didn't meet Da Vinci in the episode where he goes to Da Vinci's workshop. Right. <laughs> but he's only there for like a minute. He's like, I'm just going to come here, grab this one thing and go. Right. <laughs> so the monk then explains what his whole deal is to the doctor. Which includes, so he has apparently collected a fortune and compound interest through time travel that he like made a really smart investment and then like went forward in time to collect on it. Which is also interesting given like what is already known in the show to this point, which isn't a very long established history. It's only two seasons in. The time that he would have gone back to the bank, the Daleks have taken over Earth. This is this is the place where this is the point in time where the doctor left Susan with the resistance. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like she's she stayed behind to fight Daleks. Right. And, and also because she fell in love with one of the resistance fighters. Mm -hmm. But so if if the monk made this investment in 1968 and then went back in 2168 to pick it up, the Daleks have taken over the world. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's really like he should have come back like at least like a hundred years before that, maybe? Uh-huh. Yeah, like you would sure you wouldn't have as much money, but also you don't have to deal with Daleks. <laughs> right. Who also like I can't imagine that's a very stable environment in which to be collecting on investments. Yeah, like, no kidding. <laughs> and this and like stock like I feel like I don't know, like in that kind of crisis, like the stocks have probably lost value, like I feel Possibly. like that's not actually that smart. Yeah, no. <laughs> we also learned that it's thanks to him that we have Stonehenge, that he gave the Britons an, an, an uh, anti-gravitational lift. Which, all right, I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> Fine, sure, whatever, I guess. <laughs> it, it, aliens did it. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> uh, yeah, apparently, which is a, yeah, fun, a fun nod to that conspiracy theory that we're literally going with the aliens built Stonehenge. Here's the alien right here. Here's, here's yep. the spaceship time machine. Yep, got him. Here, here we got him. And so now apparently we learned that his plan is to prevent the Norman conquest, which uh, I guess was implied by his checklist, but now he's officially announced it. Yeah. The Vikings then bitch at each other, having finally woken up about the fact that both of them got knocked out by elderly men. And... <laughs> which... Yeah, okay. I can, I can see why, yeah. why that might annoy you. Right, and because one of them's like, you know, like, way to get knocked out by an old man, and the other one's like, well, so did you. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so initially there's, like, the honorable Viking who wants to, like, go off and do something, and then wimpy Viking who's like, maybe we just stay here and, like, hide for a while. And also there's probably, it's a monastery, there's probably treasure in here. And that's how he convinces the honorable one that the honorable one isn't like, ooh, treasure. <laughs> yeah. And like, and it's an interesting thing because like normally like a monastery of, of this time period would have like, you know, valuables in it, except for apparently this specific monastery, which is, right. which is a wreck. Like, I mean, to be fair, it has a phonograph, so. And also, and also it was raided by the Vikings previously. So, uh, so maybe right. they already carted off everything of value. Right. Although, again, if this was really like the monks had returned, 
you would think that they, yeah, would, they would have brought, brought new objects them. of value. Yeah, like yeah. if there had been actually monks, that there would be like stuff there. And he has, but, but, but what are they going to do with an electric griddle? Right. <laughs> like bring this stuff back and like Harold Hardrada's like, the fuck is this? Yeah. What are you doing here? I mean, it's shiny, but what is what is it worth? <laughs> right, like what do, what do I do with this? Like, is this real gold? I feel like this is not real gold. No. Eldred, who is apparently now completely fine, despite all of his heavy blood loss. <laughs> yup. And the fact that, like, the monk didn't really do anything. Like, it didn't really seem like he, like, spent a lot of time, like, bandaging him. He's just like, here's some penicillin. Here yeah. you go. Bye. Take, take two penicillin. Penicillin, don't bother me in the morning. <laughs> right. I have, a, like, I have a Viking invasion to blow up. <laughs> right. And like, you know, I'm I'm not a doctor, but I feel like when you've been like seriously injured and have like wounds out of which blood is coming, I feel like doctors typically do more than hand you to penicillin and then you're fine. <laughs> yeah. Like even the doctor could tell you that, and he's not that kind of doctor. Right. I'm, I'm also, I guess, not that kind of doctor. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so Eldred sees the Vikings and then goes off to warn the others about the fact that there are Vikings in the monastery. Doctor in the this, monastery. This man, this man is not well enough to be moved from the monastery, walks down to the village of the Bone Tower. Yep. It's totally fine now. Totally fine now. <laughs> and still <laughs> Does wonders, apparently. Yep. But even without penicillin, we do very, in this episode, see, like, Edith of her concussion being, like, like joining an attack party. So, like, yeah. just, like, recovery is very speedy. Like, these are some oh, yeah. hearty villagers, it's, apparently. What, what, are they, what are they eating? <laughs> right? Yeah, it's like, I want what they're having. Yeah. The doctor and the monk go and join Vicky and Stephen in the monk's TARDIS, uh, which yep. is clearly a better model, or at least in better shape oh, than the doctor's. Oh, it certainly is. Uh, the alien circuit's working. Uh, the directional the steering is working. It is a newer model, although... So the Doctor's, it's a bit of a running gag that's established later on once we know more of the Time Lords. But uh, mm -hmm. the Doctor actually uh, stole a TARDIS. He and Susan stole a TARDIS so they could oh. run off and see the universe. They were not allowed to have it. They, and, they, and what they stole is like the equivalent of going down to the junkyard and hot wiring like old junker. Like the Doctor's, the doctor's TARDIS is like, it's a type 40, which is established as being like kind of like old and out of date, even in, in <laughs> like the time period on the planet that the doctor comes from. Like, it's, uh -huh. it's like we have advanced past this point, but, but the doctor steals this old junker. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it'd be like the equivalent of like you go to the junkyard and steal like a like 90s Jeep or something. Yeah. Or, a, or like a, there was this old mind problem had like this really old car that he was like trying to keep running and the, and the other and his brother was just like you, you should you should drunk this and he's like and he's like no i want to keep this thing running and it's like it's really not worth it do not <laughs> i drove a car like that which was actually a 90s jeep for a bit not my car but uh i didn't have a car at the time and but my neighbor would have would uh kind of let me use that because she'd just gotten a new better car but yep. i would occasionally yeah use use her 90s jeep which did not have a right mirror yeah that's that's about roughly what the Doctor's Type 40 is. Like, yeah. That's, <laughs> the, the Doctor's TARDIS is not, I mean, it's, it's like miraculous by like a human point of view. Like it can travel anywhere in time and space. 
it has no steering, but it can do that. <laughs> so the monk then at this point explains his rationale, which is that first of all, he is very sure that Harold would have been a really good king, which is very sweet. And also yeah. like, it really just seems at this point, like he's like a real like Harold Godwinson fanboy. Which, yeah, I can see that. I, I'm, a, I'm a Harold Godwinson fangirl myself, but like- I mean, yeah, fair, it's fine. But I'm not gonna try and stop the, the Norman conquest over it. Right, so, and then also he has this like weird, he's like, no, and if we like kept Harold on the throne, then we wouldn't have like all of those wars where like the English are like making claims on the French throne, which I'll talk about later, the fact that that has nothing to do with the Norman conquest. Uh-huh. And then also he's like, and also the English will have jet airliners by 1320. And I'm like, wait, they'll what? Well, this is, this is because he's like, I'm, he, because he says like, I, with a few uh, technological pointers from me, he's like, I'm going to tell them how to do these things so they can have this technology way sooner. Like I'm going to directly influence all of this shit. Right. So like the next part is that like meet King Harold, be King Harold's best buddy and teach him <laughs> how to make a plane. <laughs> yes, that 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 we that those are the steps that we didn't see. Right. If only we'd seen the rest of the checklist. Yeah, and then and the and the part that really got me is uh is Shakespeare will be able to to uh, premiere Hamlet on TV. Okay, first off, it, without the in without the influence of Norman French, Shakespeare's English would not exist. Right. We're, yeah. we're not worrying about that one apparently. Yeah. No. And like like right now like in the present day of the, I mean, of 1066, these, these villagers would be speaking like old English, which is right. like a heavily Germanic tongue. Like yeah. the, the reason we hear it as English to our ears is a function of the TARDIS. The TARDIS, okay. uh, the the TARDIS translates like the, lo the local languages for the passengers and crew okay. of the TARDIS. So like yeah. that's, that's like a convenient explanation for why we can always understand people. I mean, I appreciate at least actually that that's an in-universe explanation that they've bothered with because yeah. a lot of things just don't actually bother explaining that issue. Oh yeah, that's they they have some fun with it sometimes. Like uh, yeah, like at one point uh, the doctor and uh, his companion Donna go back to uh, ancient Pompeii mm -hmm. right before Vesuvius erupts because the doctor always shows up at major major historical events. Right, uh, and she's like, wait, so it's translating our words into Latin. But what if I know like a phrase in Latin, like uh, veni vidi vici, like what would happen if I told, if I said that to them and, it's, and the doctor's like, uh, I don't know, you'd probably sound like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you and would so if you just randomly and, started saying veni vidi vici to like a bunch of people in like the year 70. Yeah, and, 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 and like- what's your deal? Yeah. Like one of them was like, I, like, like she she goes up to a she goes up to a random Roman citizen and says it to him, and, and he's like, he's like, where are you from, Britannia? Because <laughs> <laughs> also depending on how she pronounces it, like if you did the like ch sound, that's like Church Latin, as opposed to the it would be like a hard ca if you were doing classical Latin. Yeah, I yeah. mean it was a, it was a ch sound, so I suppose that would that would also make it weird, but be, be a giveaway. But apparently, like, if you say something that sounds foreign to you, to mm -hmm. to someone, like, it'll it'll just sound like you're saying something foreign to them. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's the in-universe explanation. It's a function of the TARDIS. Okay. I appreciate that, yeah, because it's very common in time travel things that they're just speaking language, they're just speaking to each other, and it's like, old English and modern English are not mutually intelligible, as anyone who no. has tried to read Beowulf would understand. Yeah, no, not at all. 
like you have to learn old English like you would have to learn any other language. So yeah, so I do appreciate that there is apparently an in-universe explanation for why they can all understand one another. Yes. The monk convinces the Vikings that he is on their side, but that the doctor and his companions are not. However, the Vikings don't like kill them. They just <laughs> tie them up with very good knots. Yeah, the, the Vikings, it's like, these Vikings sure know how to tie knots. <laughs> <laughs> why didn't they kill them? It would have yeah. made more sense in context for them to have killed, for the Vikings to have killed them. It would. It would make significantly more sense. Like, it's like, there's all, it's like, why, why tie them up? They could escape. They can't escape because the knots are too good, but they could escape. Right. Meanwhile, however, down in the village, uh, Eldred has arrived and explained this whole thing, and they start wondering if the monk is really a Viking spy. So finally, they figured out there's something weird happening with this monk. Yeah, it's like the doctor is like warned Edith of this Viking invasion in two yeah. or three days. And it's like, and, and the monk's like, oh, I'm expecting a, a shipment of parts for the monastery in two to three right. days. Please, like, these beacon fires for me. And, it's, and Wolf and Alpha and Edith are like, this doesn't add up. This is suspicious. <laughs> and it's also this whole thing where the monk says that they should like light these beacon fires. And he's like, yeah. it's, uh, it's, he's like, don't worry about it. And yeah. then the villagers are like, I feel like this is like for the Vikings and that's a problem. Yeah, it's like, these are the, this is the exact same time that, that the doctor said that the Vikings were going to show up. So, wait. <laughs> right. Stephen, meanwhile, learns why it's like complicated to change history. He has a whole musing. He's like, but what will happen to all the history books? And, and, uh, and Vicky's like, well, I mean, in this time, they haven't been written yet. So when they're written, they'll like say that the, they'll, you know, not have the Norman conquest in them. Yeah. And he's like, huh, maybe we should stop this from happening. <laughs> like, this, <laughs> is his, this is his big revelation. Like, right. It's like, huh, maybe it's not good to just change history willy nilly because you feel like it and like have a thing for King Harold. Yeah. Huh. And later, later uh, episodes back this up because, uh, because like when people try to like fuck with history, like bad things tend to happen. Right. Like there's a, there's an episode uh, during the Ninth Doctor's era where uh, mm -hmm. his companion at the time, Rose Tyler, her her father Pete died when she was very young. So so the Doctor, against his better judgment, agrees to take her to meet her father. So because she never got to meet her father, he takes right. her, he takes her to meet him on the day that he died, mm -hmm. and so she saves him from dying, but then time starts falling apart around them. And oh, good. Uh, yeah, because she's just created a massive paradox. And it's ultimately only resolved when Pete realizes like that he is the, the cause of all this. And so he goes and steps out in front of the car that was always meant to hit him anyway. Mm -hmm. And that sets the timeline back on track. But that was the yeah. only thing that would do it. My theory about a lot of time, about a lot of these like changing history things is that I think that a lot of these things are much more complicated than like, oh, if we just change this one tiny thing, then we will completely change the course of history. Oh, yeah. And you kind of wonder like, okay, I mean, say they'd stopped like this particular Norman conquest, like who's to say that like they wouldn't have like tried again. Yeah, and and there's like this there's this concept of like a fixed point in time, like yeah. a major historical event that like influences everything after that like you cannot change because it will break time essentially. Right. And, and there is like a bit of gray area around that. Like like the episode where the doctor and Donna go to Pompeii, like the doctor's like, I can't stop Vestuvius from erupting. Like, right. like bad shit would happen. And 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 Donna's like, 
okay, you can't stop Vesuvius from erupting, but maybe you can like save one family. Mm-hmm. And so that's what the doctor ultimately does. Like he yeah. he saves one family from the destruction. Yeah. And that's like not a big enough change that would like break all of time. But... Right. But this one guy not dying apparently was. Yeah, the one guy in question is is King Harold Godwinson. But right. Well, you're right. But I know so... that uh, that other woman's father apparently that like him not oh. dying apparently did. Well, that's that's also time. important because it's 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 her interfering with her own personal timeline. Oh, uh, okay. That makes sense. Because him dying when she's very little is an, is an intrinsic part of her mm. personal past. And so uh-huh. her, by stopping that, she has created this paradox around herself. Right. So. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, I mean, so I, I kind of think that like, okay, you would have like prevented the Norman conquest in 1066 and that it would have happened in 1069. And in the grand scheme of things, that wouldn't have actually made that much of a difference. Yeah, that's probably fair too. So that's, that's kind of how I feel about a lot of these, like, changing history, that, like, you would have to do a lot to interfere to really change the course of things. Yeah. The Saxons manage to stop the Vikings, and they come up, and they, they are able to untie the Vikings' very good knots, so, and then free them. I'm not sure if she, un- if Edith unties them. So they, so they come, so the t- Saxons all come charging in. They find the Vikings and the monk. They chase them out. All the men chase them out, and Edith stays behind to untie the knots. And I'm not sure if right. she, I'm not sure if she untied the knots or if she just cut through them. Right, because she's fair. holding a spear. It might, yeah, it might she as probably well. does that. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, there's also like there's a lot of like weird like running back and forth, which is clearly just like, like it's clearly everybody running back and forth across a very small set. Oh yes. Uh, to stim- to like simulate some like chasing action yeah. happening, and I'm definitely like I'm looking at this and I'm like, okay, I guess the import of this is all supposed to be that like they've defeated the Vikings and that they've like stopped the monk from his whole plan, but how that exactly happened is like slightly unclear to me. Yeah. So what what they ultimately do is so the doctor and Vicky and Stephen are left alone with the monk's TARDIS, which he is, he describes as a Saxon sarcophagus. Yes. Right, yeah, he does say sarcophagus, right. Yeah, and and I know that sometimes, like, you know, the English buried, like, important figures in, like, tombs, like Edward the Confessor, Mm -hmm. but I don't know that they would have called it a sarcophagus. And it's also odd, and this is something I'll talk about later, in that in terms of, like, the location, it looks like it's supposed to be an altar. Yeah. That too. So, so they, so they go inside, and uh, and so the doctor. It's it's ultimately revealed that he took out the dimensional control, which is the thing that makes the TARDIS bigger on the inside. Yeah. So that's when the monk finally gets back to it. Like it's like as big on the inside as it mm-hmm. looks on the outside. And so it's like it's like oh no, it's my TARDIS is very tiny now. And also, I, I'm pretty sure his ammunition, the neutron bombs, were still in there somewhere, <laughs> so he can't God, get. Right? So, so he can't get to them now. Yeah, and and also, it, I think he like makes that he makes it so that it can no longer like he screws up the steering too, doesn't he? So that he can like he's like stuck there. I'm not sure if he did anything to the steering. I think the main thing is like he takes out the dimensional control, and the monk can't even fit in it now. So oh, okay. It, so steering is kind of a moot point. Yeah. So he is stranded in 1066, and the doctor leaves this letter, which is basically like, maybe in a while, if I feel like you've learned your lesson, I'll come back and like let you out. <laughs> yeah. Which, <laughs> which he never does, but the monk does pop up in like a few stories much later. 
Okay. He was he was kind of uh, envisioned as like perhaps like a recurring adversary, but then mm-hmm. Peter Butterworth died. Oh yeah. I, but then but then like much later on they remembered, hey wait we've established that time time loads can regenerate. Right. Why not bring the back the monk? That, yeah, keeps changing. Why not bring back the monk yeah. with another actor? Yeah. But, but they didn't do that until like twenty first century. Right. Uh, okay. His, his sort of MO that sets him apart as a villain is like he's trying to quote unquote improve history. Like right. uh, the most recent episode he is involved in, he's uh, jumping ahead to the 20th century. Winston Churchill was prime minister through World War II, but then after right. World, right after World War II, he lost the election to the labor candidate, whose right. name I don't remember. And then he got reelected again in the 50s. So the monk is trying to be, is now uh, Churchill's new campaign manager in 1946. And he's trying to get Churchill elected again. Churchill at this point knows the doctor, like he's uh-huh. met the doctor in another adventure. And so it's like the doctor's running around here too. And the, and the Churchill's like, ah, surely the doctor is on my side. But the mm-hmm. doctor's trying to keep history going on its like right. actual course, which necessitates that Churchill has to lose Mm-hmm. And so there's some conflict there. Like, my friend is working against me. This is, this yeah. is sad. Poor Churchill. Churchill feels betrayed. Aw, poor Churchill. Yeah. <laughs> that brings us to the, uh, the end of the events. So uh, we can now move on to the next segment, the Vera at Falso, where I'll talk a bit about what they got right and what they got wrong. First of all, Viking helmets. The horned helmet is a very common pop cultural depiction for the Vikings, but there is, however, no evidence that the Vikings actually wore horned helmets. Yeah. So I mean, it's oh, it, well. it. I I will give it a slight pass because uh, because if they did not have horns, you cannot get that good line about a space helmet for a cow. But, right. But yeah. yes, no, it is inaccurate. <laughs> they did a decent job, though, on the ship, I think. Viking ships didn't originally have sails, but they did have ships that both had sails and space for a substantial number of rowers by the 10th century. Yeah. So I think the most extras that are in any one scene are the, is the scene of the rowers on the boat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't count them, but there is a, uh, a 13th century Scandinavian historical narrative that refers to a ship that had room for 68 rowers. And we've then found ships that have corroborated that approximately as something that they were capable of. So yeah. I didn't count them, but like, I don't know, that's about that right. They're 60-ish. Sure. Yeah. So oh, not bad. Yeah. Yeah. So they did a good job on that. On the Vikings, however, more broadly, uh, so we'll talk more about a lot of the kind of details of what goes down in 1066, but it's a little odd how they depict Harald Hardrada's invasion, including the fact that it makes it seem like they're just going to like sneak in and then quietly sneak down from Northumbria and then like sneak down all the way down to the south just very quietly. It was like, no, I mean, basically, like, they were assembling a fleet, and that took some time, but yeah. once they landed, they pretty much immediately started raiding and, like, capturing cities. Yeah, there's no subtlety there. Right, and it's also, I mean, and also, like, that wasn't their strategy, like, to this, yeah. like, that their goal was, like, we're going to capture and, like, take over these particular, like, towns as we pass through them. It's not like we're going to, like, sneak by and then go, and then go over, you know, go figure this out later. It's that they would be like, well, if we just take over this particular town, like, then we don't have to worry about that town. Yeah. 
that would have been the strategy. And so this like sneaking around is like a weird. Uh, it it is bit. like yeah, and and the, and the fact that like this this ship full of presumably trained Viking warriors falls to like right. a few a few Saxon villagers with spears. Right. And so it's this like bizarre representation of a Viking invasion because while Harold was able to defeat the Vikings, as we'll talk about in a in a bit, it was like it's not like it was like super easy the way it's presented yeah. here. And then the Vikings are like terrified of the of the Saxons. It's like what? Like that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it makes sense. Like after the first battle, where it's like there's only two Vikings left, and they're like, ah, oh, we've got a whole village of Saxons after us, and we're the only two left. But prior to that, like, I don't right. know why they're scared. And also, it just does, as you were saying before, it just doesn't seem that likely that this, like, village of uh, basically, like, untrained peasants. Pretty much. Like, why would they, like, it just doesn't make sense that they would be able to, like, defeat this Viking raiding party. Yeah. I mean, you know, weird things happen, but it just seems not likely as a as a possibility. Yeah. And in fact, you know, the Vikings when the Vikings did like do these raids as they were kind of entering, you know, they were overall pretty successful. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Not, it, like they didn't. They, like, didn't, they took over York. Like they took over York again. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, York is a Viking city. That's actually, York is uh, yeah. yeah. York is like their favorite. It's like it's like a. It's like okay, That's we're gonna try and we're gonna try invading England again. We'll start in York again because yeah. it's what we do. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite facts is that York is one of the towns where the name has nothing to do with the Latin name. The Latin name is Eboracum. York comes from the Scandinavian Jorvik. Yes, and there is therefore a Viking experience that you can go through in York called Jorvik, which has authentic smells. Interesting. All right. <laughs> the ease with which these Vikings are defeated uh, seems, seems rather strange. Then, of course, there is the, uh, the Saxon sarcophagus. And yeah. so first of all, there's the bits that we discussed, but then also it's presented as though it's an altar. And you can kind of reconcile this in the sense of like, okay, maybe it's supposed to be an altar that there are saints relics buried inside. Sure. I mean, I guess that makes sense. But then there's the additional problem that it's very, very simple looking. Like it has some very kind of simple carvings, but like it's not at all ornate. Like it's, yeah. there's not a lot going on. Like the doctor at, at one point explicitly like calls it out as like, oh, this horrible slab of rock. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is a bit unfair to uh, pre-conquest English altars since first of all, the ones that are carved uh, do have carvings that are a bit nicer than this. And second, a number of them might have been this simple, but they would have been this simple because the expectation is that they would have been decorated with metalwork plates or with these very elaborately embroidered cloths that would have like gems and silver and gold threads and all sorts of things. A lot of these items have unfortunately not survived because, uh, you know, people came in and stripped them down for parts, basically. Yeah. But, Henry VIII targeted the monastery specifically. Right. But it's another one of these things that if the villagers are like seeing this monastery and they're like, cool, some monks have come back, it would have seemed odd that the altar is so thoroughly unadorned. Yeah. But that, that also leads into the other, like, this is the biggest issue I feel like that I have, is what on earth is happening in this monastery and why is nobody noticing it? 
because while monks to some extent are expected to, you know, be focusing on God and contemplation and all that, they're not actually anywhere near this isolated. I mean, it's not far from a village. People would have expected to, at this point, probably like the monk, especially in this kind of context with this rural setting, the monks would have been expected to be like preaching sometimes. And people would have been saying like, can I send my kid to like your monastery for you to teach him? And like, maybe he can like stay and become a monk one day. Uh -huh. And also like people would be making donations. People would be like, you know, can I like be buried there? So it's just like these villagers would have found it weird that they'd only seen this one monk who seems to be trying really hard to avoid them and keep them out of the monastery. Yeah, there, there, that does remind me of uh, one thing I did like though. It only really comes up once, but when the doctor and I don't know, when Stephen and Vicky are leaving the village to go up to the monastery the first time, Edith and Wolfnoff like say, God be with you. So like, yeah. there's an actual reference to religion. Yeah, and like and I, like yeah, and Stephen, who is like you know a, an atheist from the future, like is a little hesitant, but like oh, but like ultimately says it back because you know it's yeah. the polite thing to do. And they clearly think it's like a little weird that he was so hesitant, which is interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. and I do also appreciate that uh, they also seem to take religion seriously, and that like they clearly have a lot of uh, respect for this monk essentially just by virtue of the fact that he is a monk like they keep trying to like say hello to him they keep like giving him these baskets of food yeah and the, and the monk's just and, and the monk is like gosh sure sure seems like a nice day for solitary contemplation cough cough <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so the way that they're trying to relate to the monk actually to some extent makes sense but in reality, I feel like they would have realized long before this that there was something up in terms of how strenuously he was trying to avoid all of that, especially because, you know, he has the, there's a singing, there's supposed to be other monks. It's not like he's claiming to be an isolated hermit, which would have been a really a much better idea. Yeah, a much better cover. Yeah, like I feel like that would have been much less suspicious in terms of, you know, his, his attempts to like not talk to anybody. I mean, it's it's one of many things that, like, does not feel that well thought through of his plan. Right. Yeah, and that, like, he has, like, just, like, what, 24-7, like, Gregorian chants playing on a phonograph, and that's the only uh, way he's, like, convincing them that there's other monks there? I mean, it's not 24-7. He, like, turns it on and off at, like, the yeah. proper times to be, for, for right. those things to be happening. So, right. at least there's that. But yeah, but that's really all he's doing. Like, you'd think at least at some point it would have occurred to him to, like, I don't know, like, grab a fake mustache and sometimes pretend to be a different monk. Yeah. He has, like, extra habits lying around. The doctor right? the doctor wears one at one point, but yeah. that might just be a change of clothes for him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, that, that dynamic is very odd. I also wanted to make a brief, just miscellaneous comment on periodization, which is that, so Stephen just described da Vinci as having lived in the Middle Ages. And I'm assuming that most people are supposed to like listen to that and be like, Stephen's dumb. Obviously he lived in the Renaissance. I, however, have this like weird appreciation for it though, <laughs> because first of all, periodization is a uh, basically something that we just made up. There's nothing really inherently that different. It's not like you woke up one day in, you know, the year 1500 and are like, ah, yes, the Middle Ages is over. I am in the Renaissance and my life is completely different now. Yeah. 
um, which is what people often seem to think. But uh, the way I sometimes describe it based on uh, Jacob Burkhardt's Age of the uh, kind of Renaissance book is that, you know, you woke up one day in the year 1500 and all of a sudden you had a personality for the first time. <laughs> sure. But Yeah. So first of all, in reality, there's a lot of continuity between what we call the Middle Ages and what we would call the Renaissance or the modern period. But second, the traditional starting point of the Renaissance is completely different based on essentially what region you happen to be talking about. And so in England, and so in Italy or the Italian peninsula, you'd usually place it like, let's, let's say early 15th century as being the start of the Renaissance, which would make da Vinci's entire lifetime Renaissance since he was born in 1452. But England, usually they link the periodization to the transition from the Plantagenets to the Tudors, so in 1485. So still during da Vinci's lifetime, but not quite at the beginning of his lifetime. It's, as I said, something that I assume is just supposed to be like, haha, Stephen did, like, did it stupid. But I appreciate it as a like comment on periodization. Yeah, yeah. Stephen is not bright, but he does come up with like these occasional like bursts of insight. Yeah. He's not as smart as like previous companions were, mm-hmm. the pre- but then the previous companions were like literally another Time Lord and uh, a couple of school teachers. So right. like people who are paid to be smart. <laughs> yeah, so it makes sense that they would be smarter than him, but. Uh... Yeah, I believe he was a, a spaceship captain before he before he got captured by the mechanoids. I mean, so you think not that dumb, right? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a decent pilot. He just doesn't know his early Earth history. Right. So as I said, I'm, I'm going to take this as a comment on the fluidity of periodization, whether or not that's what was intended. Yeah, I'll go with that. However, the final thing that I want to comment on in this, uh, this section, the Vera et Falso, is this assumption that basically by stopping the Norman conquest, you would have, I guess, prevented the Hundred Years' War. Yeah, that's something. Because <laughs> it seems like the monk is under the impression that these claims that the English kings had to the French throne are related to, yeah, come from William the Conqueror. Come from, come from the Dukes of Normandy. Which they do not. The French no. kings would have had no interest in the Dukes of Normandy, you know, inheriting from them at any point. It comes from these later marriages of English kings to French princesses. And in fact, you know, I mean, the immediate justification for the Hundred Years' War was a quite recent one in that Edward III, who is the person who started really claiming, like, I am the rightful heir to the French throne, it was his mother, Isabella, yeah. who was a daughter of Philip IV of France. Yeah, and, and all of Philip IV's sons died childless, and, uh, and so, like, since the, the French throne can only pass to a man, because that's mm-hmm. how it works, like, it, it went to a fairly distant cousin, and Edward's like, I'm Philip IV's grandson, I'm right yeah. here, I should be king. Right, which is you know, fairly legit right. as these yeah. things go. Uh, as, as we'll get to, it says it's certainly how, just as that, legit as any of the claims in 1066 to the English throne. That's how it would work in, in English law. Yeah. So, right. but the not French in, law. Yeah, and the problem in France is that they basically dragged up this old law about how inheritance can't pass through women. They basically resurrected this to basically solve a different inheritance dispute. And the way I understand it is that it was also at least in part because they, because they were like, we don't want to be ruled by an Englishman. Right. That was a kind of at least like side benefit. Yeah. Of like, yeah. we don't want to deal with these people. And in general, like that's 
it is a standard, like that is a standard potential issue in European royalty is that you, mar you marry daughters off to other kings and you don't want those other kings coming back and ruling your country. Yeah. And so that is definitely like a general issue that you might have. There's no reason to think that the, say, the theoretical line of kings descended from Harold Godwinson wouldn't still have ended up marrying into member, you know, marrying members of the French royal family. The said member, said French princesses might have had a slightly harder time in that they wouldn't have been able to enjoy the fact that the English royal court basically just all spoke French. Yeah. But, you know, other than that... New you have to learn a whole new, not pretty at all sounding language. Right. But, you know, like, it's not like the King of France would have cared about, like, his daughter bitching about the fact that she had to learn, like, weird German. Yeah. So there's no reason not to suspect that that marriage or similar marriages wouldn't have still happened. Therefore, you know, something like the Hundred Years' War still wouldn't have happened, even if it didn't happen at exactly that date or something. I, I haven't really tracked it that closely but i'm pretty sure the uh the godwin line like dies out pretty quickly after the normal conquest right just naturally who knows if like harold would have happened to have like had a conveniently timed son or if they wouldn't have just still been like in a similar succession mess that still could have yeah. ended up with the normans being in charge you know within a decade True. so i i am not sure that the monks plan entirely makes sense for a number of reasons it's it's kind of addressed in universe that like even in universe with all these rules that about how time travel works in Doctor Who, his his plan still doesn't make sense. Right. He shows up later. His plans still don't make sense. And the doctors the doctor's essentially try given up on trying to explain to him why he does why his plans <laughs> don't work and is just trying to stop him. He's like, I already, I I can't I can't even deal with you anymore. Yeah. Well, and he's and like the doctor especially like gets mad at the monk when when one of the monk's bigger fuck ups directly results in the in, in the death of the doctor's great grandson. Right. So he's he's beyond the point of trying to reason with him after that. Yeah, that's fair. We can now move into the next section, the Historia ad Veritas, where we talk about a real historical event or phenomenon. I want to talk about basically why England is a fucking mess in 1066. And feel uh, free to add in some extra details about uh, your, your buddy Harold. As, I uh, love this story. Yes. <laughs> basically, the short version, I feel like, is that it's really all Edward the Confessor's fault. Well, I mean, it's partly Edward the Confessor's fault, but I, I, I can also see why he did the things he did the way he did. Yeah. It's a series of decisions that went very poorly. Right. Because essentially the upshot is when he dies in 1066, he hasn't actually made any particularly clear provisions for the succession. Partially by design, because like there are two very good claimants and he really doesn't want to deal with them fighting each other while he's alive. Right. So it's something that's understandable, but also is obviously going to lead to things being a bit of a disaster the second oh, he yeah. dies, which is then exactly what happens. Yeah. So Harold Godwinson is the son of Godwin, who's the Earl of Wessex, and also he happens to be the brother of Edward's wife, Edith. Yes. He becomes the Earl of East Anglia at the time of this marriage. And this then, however, this is not like an idyllic relationship between in-laws, it gets no. complicated. Part of the kind of instigating issue seems to have been a dispute over the Archbishopric of Canterbury, which often doesn't bode well in English <laughs> history. Uh, 
No, not at all. As I understand it, like, Godwin was, like, an extremely powerful vassal of Edwards, who, like, yeah. had, for, for all practical purposes, like, Godwin alone had more power than Edward could muster if he didn't have Godwin on his side. Right. Uh, and so Which that's... Is never a position you want to be in if you're the king. It's really not. And that's, and, like, so a lot of, a lot of Edward's decisions are, like, made through, like, okay, I have to keep Godwin happy or I am no longer king. Which is why right. he, which is why he marries Edith. Which yeah. is why he gives, which which is why he ends up giving Harold uh, so much power. Like, but then he kind of swings the pendulum in the other direction in terms of being like, well, but I don't have too much power. And so then when right. one of his relatives is selected as the next Archbishop of Canterbury, he's like, nah, we're not gonna do that. No. Basically, this kind of devolves into a larger conflict and Godwin and Harold and some other brothers end up getting exiled. And Edward even then repudiates Edith and uh, packs her off to a nunnery for a bit, as you do. As you do. He did subsequently forgive them. He restores Edith as queen and restores all of the assorted Godwins to their earldoms. At this point, you know, he, he seems to have been, uh, at this point, kind of reconciled himself to the fact that, you know, all right, I'm not really going to be able to do much about the Godwins. And some people would generally say that at this point, he's kind of assuming one of them will probably succeed him. Yeah. And it's probably going to be Harold, yeah. frankly. At his death, he in some way kind of commended Edith and the kingdom to Harold's protection. It's unclear exactly how he meant this in terms of whether he literally meant you should be my successor or whether he meant this as a kind of temporary thing. You know, there's really no way entirely of knowing. Also, part of his thinking is like, okay, if I have an heir with Edith, that means that there's going to be a Godwin on the throne in a way because my kid will be right. Godwin. But also, he will be a child and he will have to deal with Uncle Harold. So right. I'm just not going to have a kid. <laughs> I'm it's also, saving course, the pain. Right. But it's also, of course, not impossible that he's sort of maybe hoping for the best that, like, who knows? Maybe Edith is pregnant. Like, maybe Harold, you know, will, like, help, will, like, be on board with this because it is, because, like, he would be basically ruling for a long time as, like, the de facto king. Who knows? Then you have the Norman claim and uh, the Bayou Tapestry, which I highly recommend seeing for when we can travel again in 10 years or whatever. An important note about the Bayou Tapestry is that it was commissioned by William. So it has yes. a very pro-William bent. Oh, yes. It's, it's like how Sh Shakespeare's patron was Elizabeth Tudor. So, so all the of The Tudors his, look really good. Yes, are all, like, are all like leading up to like, okay, this person is good and this person is bad. And, and ultimately the Tudors are the best. <laughs> Right, and then it's, it's, yeah, and so like all of this stuff that he like makes up about Richard III to like- Richard, make... the, Richard III sucked and, he, and Henry Tudor was our savior. Right, and it's like, oh, wow. I feel like no one who met Henry Tudor would come to that impression, but sure. Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> But yeah, so, uh, you know, the Bayou Tapestry is very much representing what is William's official position about how things went down. So that is clearly a bias that it has, and we genuinely have no idea to what extent these things happened or not, but they're certainly what William wanted people to think happened. Yeah. So according to the tapestry, Edward had designated William as his successor and even sent Harold to Normandy to inform William of this. While hanging out over there, the tapestry makes pains to add in that he was knighted by William and swore an oath of fealty to him. William is act an actual blood relative of Edward's instead of just a relative by marriage. 
Yes, he's, let's see, I wrote this down because it's a huge pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> Edward's mother, Emma, and William's father, Robert I of Normandy, are cousins. Yes. Edward did not have many surviving relatives any closer than that. He was the youngest and last son of Ethelred the Unready. Right. Like, his older brother Edmund was king for, like, not quite a year before he got overthrown by yeah. Canute the Great. Yeah, and there's also a bit a complicated added wrinkle to this that we'll get to in terms of that oh, yeah. Canute the, the Great was married, then married his mother. Yep, and, and so and, and, and sort of, of adopted. is his, yeah. So, so part so of Canute is his half-brother. Yes, and Canute sort of kind of adopted Edward, but yeah. also not really. It's a mess. <laughs> Yeah, but it was why Edward kind of coming to the throne, even though he was the son of Ethelred the Unready, it's why he basically had a very easy path to the throne when Hartha Canute died without children, because they were half-brothers, and that was a, an okay relationship, basically. And Hartha Canute's other brothers were already dead by that point. Right. So according to the tapestry, you have this emphasis on the fact that Harold swore this oath of fealty, and so uh, it presents then his... Uh, later, his later claim to the throne as being kind of in contravention of this oath, which is which is a big deal culturally speaking. Yeah. But again, there's no way to know if it happened or be what precisely that oath would have meant in context. It then actually depicts Edward on his throne as basically vaguely pointing at Howard, which is this sort of you know take care of my wife and my kingdom scene. So in the so it's interesting that the tapestry still includes it, but doesn't actually have any explicit text yeah. explaining precisely what it's supposed to mean, which is uh, a really interesting decision. Yeah, I think everyone would have maybe have heard that story, and so William wants to incorporate it while still like right. holding to his chain of events. Yeah. So the tapestry is very much you know trying to present this particular narrative. It does, however, I believe, somewhat ignore the additional claimant to the throne, which is, of course, this Viking invasion by yes. Harold Hardrada. Because, Who is yeah, well. The great grandson of Canute the Great via his oldest son, who never ruled England. Well, so, yeah, so it's actually this, yeah, and so it's also this, like, complicated thing that Magnus, who was Harold's nephew and co ruler, he and Hartha Canute had just agreed that they'll be each other's heirs. Yeah, it's one of as those. As like a fun bonding thing, basically. Yeah. Um, and so that's the main basis of Harold Hardrada's claim is this agreement that Magnus and Hartha Canute made, even though it was pretty clear at the time that Hartha Canute never intended that to really include the throne of England and that he was assuming it would go to his brother, Edward. Yes. But Edward's now dead, so arguably... Why not? So arguably, Harold Hardrada's claim is better than Harold Godwinson's, potentially. I mean, everyone's claim is better than Harold's. It's just that Harold is, yeah. in a, is in a position to actually act on it. Right. He's in a position to act on it. And also, he's somebody who has been there for a long time. And yeah. all of the other earls know him and know what they're getting. I'm sure to some extent, because he's been around and very much involved in uh, the kind of running of the kingdom... Yeah. They, you know, he represents stability to some extent. He knows what's going on. Yeah. Like, so 
So they very quickly uh, crown him king, which, you know, makes sense given that, that to some extent sure. they don't really care about who has the better claim. They care about what's who going do the to- job the best. Who's going to do the best job and who's, you know, as I said, really going to keep things as stable as possible. But Harold, in a lot of ways, represents continuity, even if he's the person who uh, blood-wise has the worst claim. Yeah. You know, so this is the kind of initial- thing is that, all right, so Harold Godwinson is now king, but he's very much aware that there are these other claimants, and in particular, he knows that William is en route. William wants to, like, he knows that William's planning an invasion, and also the Pope has sided with William. Like, William has... Yes. William has gone to the Pope. Well, he sent emissaries to the Pope. He didn't go down himself. Right. But But he, like, goes to the Pope, makes his case, and the Pope is like, okay, I'll side with you. And so William's forces are bolstered by people from all over Europe who are trying to get on on the Pope's good side, like... Right. And, and yeah, and he does this in part by he makes a claim that William swore an oath on relics to uh, honor and support his claim to the throne. You mean, you mean Harold's? Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, yes. William claims that Harold swore this oath. Yes. And that's part of how he gets the Pope on his side is being like, but Harold is, is like going against this oath he made over sacred relics. And the Pope's like, oh, we don't want that. So, no, that's not cool. Yeah, so that's part of, you know, how he's able to get the Pope on his sides. But Harold knows that he's got this invasion planned and has an army gathered. But the problem, in fact, is basically that the army doesn't come soon enough. That he's basically sitting around expecting this invasion, and the invasion doesn't come, probably because, like, the weather sucked, basically. Because that's usually why fleets don't bother sailing when you think they should. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the explanation that I've always heard. Harold basically, like, disbands his army and treks back to London, and then, like, right then, Harold Hardrada, in alliance, actually, with Harold Godwinson's brother. Oh, yeah. T- uh, that's, that's, another fun, that's another fun side quest of this whole story. The year before, Tostig and all of the, uh, uh, Tostig and some nobles in Northumbria, like, raised up in revolt against Edward. Mm-hmm. And Harold helped Edward put them down instead of, instead of siding with his brother, which is... So Tosta gets exiled and ends up in Norway. And so that's like part of why Harold was like on such good terms with Edward at the moment of Edward's right. death is because he uh, sided with his king against his brother. But Right, then... which he probably does in part because he's kind of figuring like, well, Edward still doesn't have kids. I'm on his good side. I have a decent chance of succeeding him. And that yeah. might be more secure than siding with my brother in this like half-cocked rebellion. Yeah, and Tostig, who is uh, understandably very annoyed, right. uh, ends up, you know, kind of at the ear of Hardrada. Right. So they're buddies, and they now invade England, and uh, Harold Godwinson then has to, like, very quickly reconstitute his army and drag them all the way back up north to Northumbria in order to defeat Harold Hardrada. And he does defeat Harold and Hardrada, he does. Which, is like a, which is like a... A legitimate feat of, of logistical brilliance. Oh yeah. Harold Godwinson was like an an awesome general. Like yeah. And he and he does not get enough credit for that because he's most famous for losing a battle. But. Right. And this is then the part where the monk's plan actually sort of makes sense, not in terms of the longer term impacts, but in terms of 
would Harold have been able to defeat William if the Viking, inv if he hadn't had to worry about this Viking invasion? And the answer is actually maybe. I mean, because he had to like drag, like haul ass like 200 miles north and then haul ass 200 miles back south because then- And he manages to, and he also manages to like, despite the, despite the like excellent timing of like William sets sail about the time that, that Hardrada makes landfall, like, yeah. The fact that Harold is able to be there at Hastings and meet them at, like, despite right. all of that, like, is incredible. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it really, it's really pretty impressive on his part and also has a lot to do with basically poor timing. Oh, yeah. I mean, so basically if, like, the weather had been better and William had showed up in, like, May or whatever, like he was supposed to then it's very possible Harold would have defeated William and then several months later defeated Harold Hardrada and not had to worry about any of this. Yeah. So, and, and he would yeah. have solidified his own claim by being yeah. like, yo, I beat you guys, like, back off. Right. So, and you know, and who knows what would have happened long term. Like, you know, there were still Normans with claims and even if William had been killed and, you know, and who knows whether Harold would have had a son, etc. And William but, had his sons. and Right. But, you know, but certainly, like, it is not impossible that specifically Harold's loss at the Battle of Hastings in 1066 could have been prevented by basically saving him from having to deal with this Viking attack. Yeah. Also, fun facts about Harold's death. The traditional account uh, often describes Harold as being killed through an arrow to the eye. Yes. This, however, is not actually in the earliest account, which is a Norman source, the Carmen de Hastingai Prolio, the uh, Song of the Battle of Hastings. And this just states that Harold was killed and dismembered by four knights. That's evocative. Right? Yeah. I, the way I've always heard it is that the, the, the image in the Bayou Tapestry is like Harold with the arrow to the eye, but like that might just be symbolism for it. Yeah, he died. Look, look, it's a dead right. guy who is supposed well, to be Harold. Yeah, well, so it's also interesting because the inscription that says basically Harold, uh, like here King Harold died, is uh, written in such a way that it is over two different dying figures. And one of them is a guy with the arrow going through the eye and the other is a guy being trampled by a horse. Both fun ways to go. Both fun ways to go. And there is actually a debate about which of these is supposed to be Harold. Then related to this, at some point in the 19th century, some restorers apparently thinking that Harold was definitely killed by the arrow, but that the guy lying on the ground was actually Harold, they stitched in an arrow to his eye. <laughs> and then later restorers are like, that's not supposed to be here and unstitched it. All right. <laughs> Historical revisionism in action. Right. So <laughs> some fun things happening with the Bayou Tapestry, which, mm -hmm. uh, again, I highly recommend everyone look up online. Uh, and also you can look up the Bayou Tapestry memes, which are well, also one of my One of my other medieval historian friends uh, recently bought a Bayou Tapestry replica that she just has hanging on one wall of her bedroom. That sounds kind of delightful. It does. I have and was looking at today the like, uh, not exactly a replica, but the little like booklet where you can like unfold. Oh, yeah. But yes, I was looking through that today to kind of look at the precise inscriptions and all that. I like it. With that, we can now move on to our next section, the Fabula Nostra. 
where we talk about a movie, show, whatever, that we might want to create inspired by this. I'm intrigued by this time meddler figure and have been thinking about what other medieval events I could at least see somebody wanting to try to change or prevent. And the one that I actually can think of, especially from a kind of 21st century standpoint, is that I could see that except for the whole changing history is bad thing, some people might think it would be a good idea to prevent the Crusades. A lot of people died for basically no good reason. I mean, in addition to like the war not having accomplished anything, like within, I mean, yeah. like the first, like they took over in the first crusade, but like within a couple hundred years, they lost everything. So like it didn't even have a point except for a lot of people having died, both in war and civilians being murdered, including the fact that, you know, starting already in, 10, in 1096, sometimes the crusaders would just be like, oh, well, we're supposed to go kill like the non-Christians abroad, but like we've got some here too. Let's just like murder these Jews for no reason. Yeah. And also, you know, you could argue that like, Muslim Christian or Eastern Western relations were damaged by the Crusades in ways that have later impact, arguably. Yeah, probably. Yeah, certainly I, didn't do anything good. Like, I feel like Saladin in particular, like, would have worked well with Western rulers, perhaps, if they weren't all trying to kill each other. Yeah, like, I feel like if, like, Saladin and Richard the Lionheart were, like, on the same side, like, you know, maybe they could have, like, done something good for once. Yeah. Who knows? So I was uh, thinking about the idea of somebody trying to prevent the Crusades. And uh, the problem is, of course, is that the there are an immense amount of factors that go into why the Crusades end up getting declared. And you obviously can't like solve those by fixing one thing. Yeah. So I'm taking the lesson from this, uh, this serial <laughs> of choosing one just really overly simplistic route by which somebody might try to prevent the Crusades, which is that the Pope who first called the Crusade, Urban II, was actually facing an anti-Pope, Clement III, since this is still kind of in the midst of investiture controversy stuff. Uh, so Henry IV, the Holy Roman Emperor, keeps saying like, no, here's my Pope, like take this one, take this Pope instead. Yeah, it's like, I, can I can appoint my own bishops, I can appoint my own Pope. I'm the so, Roman Emperor, what you gonna do about it? Right. I could see this idea of somebody basically deciding I'm going to prevent the Crusades from being called by essentially having Urban say kind of waylaid and captured or killed and he never be, is able to actually function as Pope and the anti-Pope Clement III ends up actually kind of successfully being the sole Pope. I feel like I then would kind of have it such that like this doesn't actually prevent the Crusades. It just maybe like delays them by two years or something. Yeah, like Clement calls them instead. Like Clement calls them instead or like then Clement dies and whoever like comes next say is a sort of compromise candidate and that person calls the Crusades. Like who knows? Yeah. But that I... Uh, I think that actually, as I, as I was saying before, I think this idea that like you change this one thing and that alters the entire course of history. I, I think that the course of history is often a lot more complicated than that. And that this is certainly an event where, yeah, the kind of factors that led to the crusade being called were still very much there. And if Urban hadn't done it, some other Pope would have soon enough. I like the idea of somebody doing this and it changes history, but only in this way that ultimately basically only like five medieval historians would give a shit about. Yeah. I'd be one of the five, but I mean, I, <laughs> I, also I would, would want to see that. Like, yeah. Uh, 
the thing that I was inspired to try and make from this was also sort of like kind of a historical event that only historians really know about. And it's, and it's the absolutely buckwild series of events that is England in 1066. So I would, I would do like essentially just a mini series of all the, all the shit that goes down, like leads up to 1066 with mm -hmm. Edward and Harold and William and the ultimate conflict and, uh, I don't think I would include Hardrada as a as a viewpoint character just because I want his his uh, invasion at Stamford Bridge to come out of nowhere. Right, <laughs> that would be an interesting. Yeah, it's it's like it's like you have you build up this conflict between Harold and William, like Harold and William were both expecting, and then suddenly out of nowhere Vikings, <laughs> and so like I I I just kind of want to make it is like a, almost a Game of Thrones move. Kinda, yeah. <laughs> Like in much in much the way that a lot of Game of Thrones is like inspired by real world history, like sort right. of take a take take a dramatic cue from that, and like Vikings out of nowhere, <laughs> suddenly Vikings. I would avoid and I would pass the if Decker test by having Edith play a fairly major role and not die. Hey. <laughs> and also Matilda of Flanders is that is that am I thinking of the right one? William the Conqueror's wife. Yes, and uh, and it also I feel like I don't know. Depending on how far back you go, it could be interesting to have Emma like in flashbacks. At least I can't oh, remember yes. when did she die. I don't remember, but it's it's a while. But it could I be think. interesting in flashbacks, like uh, you know, this woman that is very much kind of like at the heart in some ways of a lot of these like weird weird machinations. Like I actually like I think I would actually love a show about her too. Yeah. I mean, like, this is bizarre that she's like, she's like married to one king of England and then this other one takes over and she's like, nope, I'm going to marry this one now. Yeah. Bold move. Bold. Yeah, I actually, I'll be honest, in terms of my like weird crusades adaptation, I still actually would have to think about how to uh, pass the if Decker test because I have all of these like posts which <laughs> sort of like limits the, uh, yeah. there actually was this like whole thing, this whole like conflict going on where Urban II, basically just to like fuck with Henry IV, <laughs> was backing his wife who was like claiming that he was beating her or actually like I think she might have like claimed like like actually like basically claimed like marital rape fun yeah good times yeah Urban was backing her but it didn't really have anything to like do with her it was actually just to like fuck with it with Henry the fourth yeah that sounds on brand yeah we can now move to rating this on our on a scale of one to five based on whatever criteria you see fit. So I think I'm going to give this a three. I definitely really enjoyed it and it makes me want to watch more Doctor Who. But in terms of the actual historical bits, I feel like it does leave something to be desired in some areas. That's fair. I'd ratchet it up to a four. It's fairly historically, well, Doctor Who tends to be all over the board with historical accuracy, despite being like originally conceived as an educational show. Uh -huh. uh, like it, it does get some aspects of history right. This is one of the episodes that is like centered around a, a real historical event. Mm -hmm. like, and I think bonus points for, for one that's not especially well known, like people have heard of it, like, even Stephen has heard of the Battle of Hastings. Uh, right, and Stephen like doesn't know shit. Not nearly as many people know about the Battle of Stamford Bridge or the lead right. up to it. Yeah. Uh, even though, in my opinion, I think that's almost more interesting. I'm gonna give it a four out of five because I think it's depicting an actual historical event and one that a lot of people don't know about it at. It's very important for the history of the show because it establishes mm -hmm. that there are are other time travelers like there are other we they don't call them time lords yet but they but there are other 
members of the doctor's race who have other TARDISes. Mm-hmm. And, and it also like establishes like, you know, the whole type of plot of like someone tries to interfere with the history and the doctor has to stop them. Yeah. Which becomes like, you know, a, a recurring theme because it's yeah. a good thing to have in a time travel show, but. Yeah, which is a really interesting dynamic. I will say also the other reason I'm keeping it at a three is also because I don't love the gender dynamics. The gender dynamics improve greatly over time. It, this is yeah. this is a product of 1965. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I don't like I don't think the gender dynamics are bad for 1965 necessarily. Yeah. But you know, watching it as a 2020 person, like they're not they're not yeah, great. That's, that's true. And like the, even there are even other serials around this time period that do it better. Mm-hmm. Like the one where they go back to ancient Rome. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are two reactions one can have to the news that you're going to meet the Emperor Nero. There's, oh no, Emperor Nero's not a good dude. Maybe it's a bad, maybe it's he's someone we want to avoid. Or you could be like Victory, who's like, fuck yeah, we get to meet Nero. <laughs> he's like a he's like a famous historical figure. I, I'm into this. Let's go. <laughs> I feel like I would actually have that reaction. I would too. Like, Vicky and I are on the same page there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to be, like, led before the Emperor Nero in chains or anything no. like that. But no. I but would like, be okay, like, being at the same party as Nero. Yeah. Maybe being one of the people that Nero forces to sit through one of his violin concertos. But right, right. he's not very good, but you have to clap because he's the emperor. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I have a feeling also to some extent, I wonder if this particular episode is sort of suffering from the loss of like a companion who is an actual like adult woman who was yeah. educated. This is, this is the first uh, episode that doesn't have that because mm-hmm. Barbara's not there. Right. And so it's just like just weird dynamic where it's just like Vicky being talked down to all the time by two adult men. Yeah. And then there's this, like, one medieval woman who, like, you know, you're, like, hanging out with for, like, an entire episode before you even know her name. Yeah. She also, like, I don't know, is this, I don't know, she's, like, very weirdly this kind of, like, side character and, like, all of the medieval people, again, kind of seem vaguely dumb, like. I mean, yeah, I mean, and since, since the focus is on our time travelers, like, at any point in time they go to, like, the the people they meet kind of have this side character dynamic, because they're going to be around for one story, and then you probably aren't going to be back to visit them again. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm definitely interested in watching more Doctor Who. I think the concept oh, yeah. is really interesting, we, we, and I think it's interesting to see what they do with the We, we uh, absolutely the should, yeah. yeah. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on and for introducing me to Doctor Who. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a wild ride. Yeah, so yes, hope to have you back on for a future episode. In the meantime, where could listeners find you on the internet if they so desired? I have projects in the works, but none of them are in a viewable state okay. <laughs> at present. I tweet occasionally at Lizzie Strider, but really when I have things to show from my projects, I will mention them on future episodes. Sounds but good. But I, I have nothing now. Sounds good. And uh, and you are also, you're in the Medi- the Media Evil Facebook group, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, so. I post there sometimes. Yeah, so people will also see you there. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review Media Evil on Apple Podcasts. And I will read new five-star reviews in future episodes. 
hint, hint, listeners, you should write one that uh, I'll read in a future episode. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our aforementioned Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Ifdecker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I would love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. And thank you for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye.